Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's that episode, that episode that comes around for me at least twice a year, where I feel ill as hell, my nose is blocked, my head feels like it's going to explode, but I'm here giving you a pod to step two. How dedicated. In other words, public enemies, Chuck D, bring the noise. Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is what's good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week. In the circumstances, I have had a good week. Um, it's been pretty decent. Um, went to a uh, a youth birthday party um, <laughs> to, to to also take photos uh, for for some photos uh, for the family of that particular youth. And uh, yeah, I think they turned out pretty good. I'm actually really happy with how they came out. Um, so that was fun to do. Uh, got some life advice as always. And uh, yeah, just um, just been working, just been working. But uh, yeah, I've come down with a, I don't know what you want to call it, cold, just, you know, blocked nose, kind of sore throat, right? It's just one of those things in it, just happens. I feel like it's a, kind of like always a, a final, just a, I, I get this at least, I get, I get this, uh, I get this every year, right? Just around this time, uh, I always think of it as like a final fuck you from winter, just as a season. It's just like, hey, here's this, <laughs> here's his mild cold for you. It's just like, just a, something to remember us by. So like, go fuck yourself. Um, but yeah, here we are. Um, should be, I should be alright. It's fine. Don't really care. Firm in it, firm in it, firm in it, as we always do. Um, but yeah, man, I'm gonna keep it relatively. Um, uh, tight as uh, as this episode goes along because uh, uh, this is the best I'm going to be throughout the hour um, I'm not going to get any better um, so let's just keep it freaking moving right I've had a lot of things I've actually wanted to talk about just uh, as an intro I, I always think of intros throughout the week and I never actually write them down or remember them um, and it ends up just being the thing that's on my mind right as I press the R button it's just <laughs> or the R key and uh, yeah, so I don't really have much on my mind except uh, just to keep reminding myself when I take these earphones off after recording, do not do it very fucking slowly. Um, I've, I've one of those things where like, you know, where you just head feels compressed, right? I'm just, you know, it's just got, ow, just got something there. And when you take off earphones too fast, it, I don't know, it's like it creates a vacuum in your brain and it's like, whoop, and it just really fucking hurts my ears so i was trying to remind myself as soon as this ends just take them off fucking slowly because if i don't i might lose hearing <laughs> oh my gosh it's horrible anyway we have an all music episode for this one ladies and gentlemen uh really excited about this one some really good stuff here uh got a well two that are articles and also a long read to finish off um, and yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be fun. I I I like this one. This is this gonna be good. Uh, so let's jump by formalities before we begin. Email, socials, writing, all that, all that, all that in the full show notes, as well as music and the pods under the five EPN. Uh, did a contemporary call on digging digits, and also had Brandon and Mickey on for in search of source on Wednesday so feel free to jump in those and everything else within the 5 EPO 
But with that said, let the music drop. And let's get into the show. In a week where jazz pianist Ahmad Jamal dies age 92, and that's um, very significant if you're into hip-hop circles, because if you think of any piano uh, sample in your favourite hip-hop song, especially the further you go back in the catalogues, um, that is most likely an Ahmad Jamal uh, sample. The World Is Yours, uh, for example... Uh, there was another one in my mind, uh, Stakes Is High, I think, I think Stakes Is High, there's one there, um, that's all with Mark Jamal, and, and many more, um, so RIP. Dominion Fox News trial is settled after day one of the trial, and apparently Fox News has another one coming, so that's, that's fun. Uh, over 100 animal rights protesters delay the Grand National, uh, Just Stop Oil protester, Disrupts the World Snooker Championship. And lastly, Frank Ocean dupes his fans once again with a lacklustre Coachella performance. I, I just uh, I just don't know what you guys expect at this point. Like, what do you expect from Frank Ocean? Seriously. Like, you, you, people get Lauren Hill, people get Erica Bardu for being like, you know, late and notoriously late and stuff like that. But hey man, at least they, at least they tour re- re- reasonably regularly. Um, I mean, Erica Badu is literally doing one, literally announced one with Yasin Bey a couple of days ago. Um, so, you know, might be late, but she's going to be there and she's going to actually do a show. Frank Ocean, they performed uh, since, in six years and you lot were so gassed, so, so gassed. And that's what you got. Peak. He's a narcotic, bro. Get off him. Just, just, just stop, stop expecting shit from him. Stop expecting shit. Honestly, it's like you're doing... You're doing you're doing yourself bad. You're doing yourself dirty just by thinking that he's gonna, uh, I don't know, just deliver you to heaven um, with a performance. Don't don't expect it. Um, but that's just me being hater half half halfway as well. So take that take that with a pinch of salt. All right, let's begin. Um, so I wanted to begin with this uh, one that I found uh, earlier in the week, and uh, it was just like a guaranteed just lock. As soon as I saw it, in put it in just. Uh, you know, this, I'm dealt, this is this is right up my alley. This is something I've been wanting someone to talk about, and I hope some people talk about more because this needs to be scrutinised. This needs to be critiqued and actually seen with a critical lens because uh, it's it's getting bad now. It's getting really bad. I'm talking about hip hop media, and you know, it's it's something that I find more negatives than positives when I when I hear the word hip hop media. Partly just because of the people that consider themselves quote unquote hip hop media. I find hip-hop journalism and hip-hop media to be two different entities at this point, and hip-hop journalism to be the more, um, you know, just grounded one, and hip-hop media is just like talking heads, chatting shit, and I'm not really here for that most of the time. But I found this piece is uh, via Defector, and written by Israel Daramola. It's simply called, How Did Hip-Hop Media Get So Bad? And there's a fun little picture of DJ Academics of course, and it says in the uh, uh, caption, DJ Academics saying something dumb. Perfect, perfect way to start. This year marks hip-hop's 50th anniversary. The art form and the culture that was born out of it have seen a lot of peaks and valleys over those years, but a few defining principles have always remained. Authenticity, free expression, and scepticism of systems that have worked to keep the downtrodden in their place. But over the last 
last decade plus, the apparatus around hip-hop and the people who have come to represent the culture have gotten steadily worse. Consider Traplor Ross, a white British guy who calls himself a hip-hop historian. He has close to a million subscribers on YouTube, and the videos he posts on his channel rack up millions of views. His most recent entry, which has been watched a million times in two days, is titled King Von, Rap's First Serial Killer. You don't need to watch more than a few minutes of any Traplor Ross's work, uh, any of Traplor Ross's work, to understand uh, the register at which he's operating. It was just under 30 years ago that rap media was admonished slightly unfairly for its role in instigating the East-West beef that claimed the lives of Tupac and its always B.I.G. Now, it's at this level of shamelessness sensationalism. His videos carry the same flourishes and aesthetics you'd find in a video from a Comic-Con attendee explaining the latest Marvel Easter egg to his followers. The difference in this case is that the law being discussed, analysed and geeked out over are gang and rat beefs that result in murder. Trapple Ross exists in an ecosystem of online provocateurs alongside high-energy remoras like Vlad TV and DJ Academics, both of whom came up similarly exploiting beefs and gang violence within hip-hop, have now built large enough audiences to become stalwarts in the rap media ecosystem. Recently, the e- this ecosystem has taken a noticeable right-wing turn, Academics just had a photo op with Donald Trump and signed a deal with Rumble, a video platform that pitches itself as a welcoming home for reactionary pundits. The No Jumper podcast, hosted by another white guy who calls himself Adam22, has platformed people like Nick Fuentes. It's tempting to pin this reactionary drift on interlopers who are less interested in the music than they are in making money off it, but it's also entirely too neat. As, rapper, as actual rappers have gotten into the podcast business, they've shown a similar tendency to parrot reactionary right-wing po- talking points and espouse their own conservative beliefs. On March 31st, when notable scumbag Andrew Tate was remanded to house arrest in Romania, Drink Champs host and rapper Nori asked his Twitter followers if he should have Tate on the show, although he later rescinded the offer and claimed it was a joke. Drink Champs had previously got into hot water for allowing Ye to go on an infamous rant against the Jewish community. And really, anyone with, uh, with with even cursory knowledge of Drink Champs and other shows like it, including those hosted by rappers Joe Bundon and Math Hoffer, will not be surprised to find someone like Tate getting an invite. Everything tangential to rap, from social media outlets like The Shade Room to podcasts to YouTube, has in some way promoted content that is divisive at worst, and uh, divisive at best, and borders on racist and misogynistic at worst. How did it get to this point where so much of hip-hop adjacent media is becoming rooted in standard issue, reactionary politics and or the cynical exploitation of the pain and death of people, of the people who still create the music? Well, it certainly did not happen overnight. Part of the problem, surprisingly, is structural. Rap journalism and journalism in general has continued to crumble and that atomization has increasingly sent hip-hop fans to social media platforms that, inc- that incentivize and empower the charlatans we've been talking about. In this sense, the broader hip-hop conversation is being pulled to the right by not just the same sinister incentives, but, but the same algorithms currently doing that work everywhere else. There's also the issue of hip-hop's global domination. How can an art form remain punk and revolutionary while also being the hottest genre in music for decades? Good point. Rappers are worth near billions of dollars. They are the establishment now and the biggest stars spend their time gallivanting with the wealthiest white elite. Mainstream power brings mainstream attention from people who do not possess the critical thinking skills necessary to interrogate what sort of values 
and politics are likely to be passed down from this elevated status. That the audience is growing for, is good for business. That the newest members of that audience are the least informed is having about the effect you'd expect. The main problem, to my mind, is one of artistic and cultural literacy. This is perfect. This is exactly what I was thinking of. Education, these people just don't have the education and they refuse to do so unless they can make money from it. It would be ahistorical to say that rap music itself has never flirted with conservative ideology. Despite its punk roots, it has always gloried <coughs> excuse me, in conservative ideas about women, masculinity, homosexuality and wealth accumulation. In the past, these, thi- these things fueled the more racialized fight between terrified white suburbanites and the political figures that pandered to them and the creators of, creators of a new crass black art form they didn't understand. The mainstream of hip-hop more or less ended that fight, and now in its place there is something much more convoluted and potentially more damaging. Reactionaries who once demonised rap music as an art form are now free to invite rappers and rap pundits to stand alongside them in defence of the rancid values that the two groups have always shared. Combine that with the average fan's inability to interpret a rap song, or any media really, in anything but the most literal way, or to understand hip-hop culture as anything other than a reality show about gangbangers, and you have an audience that is primed to be led down a reactionary path. That path could include anything from degraded women for entertainment, to amassing support for Donald Trump's re-election campaign, uh, despite these attempts to push against the grain of wokeness and cancel culture, they've just ended up right at the beginning, promoting Christian base hegemony and Moynihan, Moynihan report-style myths about blackness. When academics completes his move to Rumble, he'll be sharing it with the likes of Tate, Donald Trump Jr., Russell Brand, and Dan Bongino, grifters and creeps, cynics and idiots and bigots, and people who understand that pushing on bruises is something like their business model. He won't be out of place there, but the real concern will be in how many more join him. <sighs> That's a lot to digest. That's a really lot to digest. I think the initial reaction for me personally, as a hip-hop student and a hip-hop fan and a person that, you know, I've, I owe a lot to it as a concept, right? Especially. Is... The mention of hip-hop kind of being rooted in some way in conservative ideology, right? The, the hegemony, the, the, the misogyny, the, homos, the homo, um, uh, uh, homophobia, stuff like that, right? Um, and again, right? Well, not again, but I, I say this pretty freaking often. I'm going to say in the next segment, art reflects society, right? Um, you see, if you see a... African-American in the 70s, um, you're going to see, you know, some, the average African-American, I should say, right? Not every single one, obviously, but the average one, there's going to be an element of, um, there's going to be an element of misogyny, there's going to be an element of homophobia, and it's still there, right? It's still there um, in a lot of places. And um, with that said, it kind of makes this thing that hip-hop media quote-unquote has become kind of obvious that that it was going to get to this point um and i think that's kind of why i i guess it's inherently why i've been kind of against these people and 
I've 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 never had the language apart from obviously that you know they they're clearly just grifters exploitators of the whole thing right but that deeper that deeper element of um it's kind of where excuse me hip hop has been that's uh, that's that's the that's the thing that I feel requires a lot of nuance to think about and uh I don't know if that could be rooted out Obviously, the capitalism element. I've you know regularly talked about that before here in in, in writing as well, um, and that adds to it. That definitely adds to it. The the money element, the wealth, at, at, the attaining wealth element, is uh, always a significant part of that. But it's it's just it's it's it's, it's really I guess the most disappointing thing about it is that. You know, I don't. I didn't. I I never expected academics to be better, right? I didn't. Um, I liked Joe Budden's music, right? I did for the most part. I I rated what he was about. Um, but as a com as a commentator now, he just comes off as something different, and. You know he's 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 right there. He's right there. He's he's gonna he's gonna enter the academics realm. He's gonna enter the Adam Twenty Two realm. I feel like, and the disappointing thing about it is just that the fact that these rappers don't see it, and they just I always find it so jarring that. You know, so many people I've respected hop on Vlad TV, and you know, not, not all of them just—I mean, not all of them talk about the bad shit. But obviously, that's what's encouraged, right? That's that's the that's the juicy shit that people want to talk about, right? And um, you know, it's ask ask Ben from you know when we do DITD, he 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 looks up Vlad videos a lot as a research purpose, right? And that's what conflicts me a lot of the time, where I see it as it's hard to. <laughs> it's actually funny. Um, I watched a video the other day about uh, can can we learn ethics from bad people? And the answer is obviously yes, right? Because you know, <laughs> it's, we won't we wouldn't learn anything at all, right? Um, nobody's perfect, but the fact that Vlad TV is such a a, a reliable not reliable but like a uh, a valuable let's say a valuable source um, for 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 information gathering on a certain artist it, it just um i don't know it's, it's, it's interesting and it's kind of sad for me um to think about uh but maybe maybe it was always going to be like this right um maybe it's just something that it's no point being sad over because it was kind of going to happen regardless hey man it's america bro that's how america works it's how america works um i'm i'm glad that it doesn't that I know of, fingers crossed, knock on wood, all of that, that, you know, UK, uh, black music in general, let's just say that, let's keep it broad, like not just hip-hop, obviously, uh, I hope hip, I hope UK media doesn't, UK black media, let's just say, um, or non-white media doesn't go down this route, I really hope it doesn't, um, but then again, we, I saw, saw, you know, No Clark copped on is easy meals for like an hour. So I don't know what to do on that front. I'm not saying it's easy meals is academics, not making that comparison, but 
yeah, it's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope. So I don't know, man. It's it's a depressing thing to think about, uh, but it's a worthy thing to talk about, I think. Um, and finding that extra layer of um, of why this is a thing, I think, is very valuable. So uh, shout out to Israel for writing that. Let's do our next music topic, and this is about uh, well, like I said, art reflects society. This is kind of the thing that I keep having to say, right? Um, and I found this like uh, found this opinion piece um, by I'm assuming how you say it as Kieran um, C I A R A N uh, Thapar, and um, I found it, I found it very interesting read. Um, he is the a South London uh, a London based uh, youth worker, an author of Cut Short. Uh, and yeah, this is just an article from the uh, opinion piece from the Guardian. It's called "Rap and Drill Music Give Voice to the Pain of Life in a World of Violence." And YouTube is the new amphitheater. And uh, yeah, I just um, I find the these kind of this this topic to always be worthy because of because of the previous topic of how people are so fucking reactionary. It's just it's 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 tiring. It's tiring of people just getting triggered over the smallest of shit and they don't actually engage with the idea or the argument they just blah, 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 just start screaming and it doesn't really that doesn't do anything just screaming doesn't do anything talk normal be normal but anyway let's just jump right how should we understand violent songs beyond simply calling them the creation of a folk devil there must be another way, because in my youth work with teenagers over the past decade, which has included mentoring many rappers with the experience of serious youth violence, I've come to view the narratives of music as a force to be harnessed and critiqued, not suppressed and censored. In my search for solutions, including looking at how music forms have been effectively criminalised, I found it helpful to trace the etymology of a word, an idea that's repeatedly used in common parlance, but rarely interrogated, catharsis. When we describe an experience as cathartic, what do we mean? Where does it come from? Why does it matter? In ancient Athens, people would gather at the amphitheatre to watch tragedies play out on the stage as a form of entertainment. While helping to devise the origins of Western philosophical thought in his, in his classic text, Poetics, Aristotle would briefly mention the Greek word catharsis, spelled with a K, to describe the pur- purgation, pur- yeah, purgation or purification of emotions felt by performers and audiences of drama. The specific slant of its definition has been hotly debated for centuries, but broadly speaking, catharsis was shorthand for the belief that tragic stories told in art can serve a moral and social, even medicinal, function. By making us empathetic or scared on behalf of a fictional character, we confront and drain latent feelings of pity and fear that build up in our lives in a controlled setting. By shocking us into new modes of thinking, stories teach us ethical lessons about actions and consequences and show us how to make effective decisions. Have you, uh, excuse me. Bloody hell. Have you ever felt renewed on your journey home after watching an immersive, moving film at the cinema? Perhaps hearing a sad song helped to lift a low mood or an angry song motivated you to go harder at the gym. Maybe you've read a story about someone pulling through a challenge relatable to you and it made you feel affirmed. That's catharsis. 
but philosophy need not remain the historical plaything of armchair thinkers. There are many ways of applying it to the complexities of 21st century life. Indeed, alongside thought experiments such as Plato's allegory of the cave and social design such as Jeremy Bentham's panoptic. I hate this word. I hate, I've seen it before, but I hate it. Panopticon. Panopticon. Uh, I've discovered a di- constant universal resonance in my discussions about city life with teenagers and adults alike whenever I explain catharsis. Whether it's horror films, video games, or the American gangster out that emerged from hip-hop's golden era in the late 90s, debates about the exaggerated dangers of violent art have dragged on for decades. UK rap and drill, music is no different. Earlier this year, I wrote an article challenging the pre- prejudicial uh, mining of music as criminal evidence of the British course. I argued that rap and drill lyrics should not be relied upon to convict people, especially without forensic proof of their alleged crime. The police use a negative framing, but there is something positive in this potential for catharsis that can help so many uh, that can help so many see past the doom and gloom. It can turn an outpouring of pain into a bottling of strength because its logic suggests that when rappers step into the recording studio to perform the lyrics they've written, it become it can become a vital opportunity to shed the skin of something they might have experienced, seen, or heard about in their community. It can amount to a lone medium of expression in a harsh world that otherwise uh, afford, affords marginalised young people little room to breathe. Over the past 13 years, hundreds of youth clubs have closed across the UK. Spending per child in state education has fallen, mental health services have been dismantled, and policies to criminalise young people have been rolled out by a Tory government trying to punish his way out of a violent crime epidemic. In this context of of austerity, the padded soundproof booth that wraps around a microphone should be valued as a space in which young people who have experienced violence can communicate with the rest of us. For some boys and young men I've worked with, the studio can, to use the language of Aristotle, allow for the rare purgation purgation of traumatic emotions that have built up from subsistent daily life, avoiding fatal conflict and heavy-handed over-policing. It could be a purification of the spirit, a cleansing of shame or regrets, and a lightening of hidden psychological loads that, if left unchecked, can stunt growth and affect educational achievement. And when the artist's process is complete, they remove their headphones and step out of the booth. If handled sensitively by a trusted adult, an authentic conversation about the roots of their creation might take place. In this version of events, music heals. And that's just for the performer. What about the listener? Critical discourse about the, about the young audiences that violent music attracts tend to be voiced from a place of concern and judgment. There is a quick assumption that, beca- that because lyrics themselves can be horrific in their descriptions and provocations, their impact on the vulnerable young person who hears them must be horrific too. There might be some truth in this for a child who is too immature to differentiate between their rights and wrongs, facts and fictions, but lyrics are mostly just lyrics. Even if they are based in reality, they are delivered as performative and therefore contain the rich seeds of catharsis. For those who experience British society as a web of financial insecurity, intergenerational tra- generational trauma, authoritative tellings off and insidious microaggressions in other words as an inherently violent place listening to and watching music content uh, music content can provide relatable entertainment life-saving lessons and pent-up emotional release in 2023 youtube is the greek amphitheater it is there for the student who feels scared on their bus journey to and from school because of local tit-for-tat territorial feuds 
because of the rising prevalence of knife carrying in their friendship group or the murder of someone they grew up with, uh, grew up playing football with. It is there for the frustrated teenager who turns up hungry at the youth club after being sent home early from their pupil referral unit while trying to avoid the influence of drug dealing elders and the stresses of an empty fridge home life. For the teenager who has witnessed more stabbings and shootings than you or I could imagine, yet feels judged by their teachers or police when they act out of turn. The evolution of UK rap and drill uh, music is not perfect, but it reflects the world and society we have built for ourselves. Ding, ding, ding. There he goes. He said it reflects the world. And, it all, and it's always <laughs> worth remembering that it's the storytelling of a use, vo- useless, voiceless cohort. Understanding music's potential as a form of catharsis should be a priority for those of us who care about chal- challenging the violence that its lyrics speak about. So big up Kieran for um for that article and everything he's doing. Um, considering you know just oh, I couldn't I couldn't imagine being a youth worker, bro. That just sounds like that sounds like a lot, man. And uh, you know, considering where what the Tories have been doing, I mean, he listed a lot of the bigger bigger things that they have done over the past thirteen years. Um, uh, and it's all fact, by the way. Uh, that that he ain't gonna be out of work for <laughs> he ain't he ain't gonna be out of work because. There's, gonna, there's always going to be kids like that. There's always going to be kids uh, in this in this uh, in this Tory Britain that uh, that will feel like that, that will suffer that, and uh, it's unfortunate. Um, and it can be changed, but they just refuse to um, and keep, you know, just saying the wrong things and doing the wrong things to cure it, right? And then they demonise what Trill is, and it's silly. It's silly. You're not getting to the root of the problem. You're really not because. The root of the problem is politicians and how these uh, people that are 40 plus, right, are just uh, not actually getting the picture and actually are not listening. How about you actually listen to the lyrics for once? Actually, actually, you know, they might be, they might have nothing to do with you. You might not relate at all, but ask yourself, why are these lyrics being put forward? Uh, Why is someone talking about this? It's because they're experiencing it. Okay, and then after that, ask yourself, okay, how often do they experience this? Yes, get some data on that. How many how, how many stabbings in a certain spot, right? And then after that, because that's where people go, that's where people go the wrong way and go, oh, these delinquents are, you know, committing more knife crime. Uh, oh, why are our children becoming criminals and stuff like that? Oh, woe is me. Oh, what's happening to our children? Oh, our babies and just you know, fucking bitching and moaning, get to the root of the issue. What have you guys done over the past 13 years that have, uh, if, you, if you've been all these community centres, if you've been all of these benefits that kids can have and, uh, that they, and resources they can use to help themselves, if you've been all of these, what the fuck do you expect them to do? Firm it? I mean, they will. But, you know, some of them are just going to end up dead because of it. Some of them are just going to get led down the wrong path because they don't fucking know any better. And that's unfortunate. That's really unfortunate. And as a creative, having a creative outlet is so... It can be life-changing. I literally talked about it a few episodes ago where, like, um, talking about a dude who uh, wrote a piece about how photography saved his mental health. And obviously that's a little bit different because he was just on a, you know, just a 
uh, a terrible work schedule and uh, you know just just fucked up his whole health literally mental health um and you know he found a creative outlet and now he's happy before it um you know and that's what people do when it comes to music that's what i do when it comes to my photography my writing everything everything i do podcasting and say inherently i do this and i've said this before i do this as a form of as a form of outlet as a place to where i can talk about the things i want to talk about the things that are important that are important to me that i feel like people aren't talking about sometimes etc different reasons right it doesn't have to be those two reasons but you know variant variants of reasons uh, those are those are two main ones but at the end of the day it's an outlet for me it's an outlet for me to scream into the ether in some ways and uh, talk about the things that uh, i enjoy or want or want to learn about or want to hail up as an issue you know what i mean so um yeah, man. But I like the Greek stuff. That was, that was, a, that was good. Um, that was, that was good. Um, that was a good breaking down of it. I really like that. That was, that was good stuff. Okay, so let's finish with a long read. For this one, we head to K Q E D for how Bay Area Hip Hop found its sound in the 1980s. Written by Mossy Reeves, dropped April the 5th, 2023. And with this, let's jump right. It's a wintry January evening when Bars One brings me to Dale the Funky Homo Sapiens house in the East Bay. For much of the afternoon, Buzz, the Oakland native who's worked with Digital Underground and released his own solo records, has schooled me on the origins of the Bay Area hip-hop sound. Buzz lists numerous rappers from the 80s and not just Todd Too Short Shaw, the East Oakland rapper who famously hustled homemade cassette tapes. I've never heard most of the names Buzz mentions, MC Chocolate Milk, Wendell Baby Doll, Davey Def, Buddy Bean, Reggie Reg Rockskeeter, MC Tracy, Rockmaster Fresh, Nick Knack, Kimi Fresh, and the Acorn Crew with Grandmaster Fresh, a rapper later known as DJ Daryl Anderson, famed for producing tracks like 415's Sideshow and Tupac's Keep Your Head Up. Many of these early Bay Area rappers never put out a commercially available record. Instead, their work is mostly confined to locally distributed cassette tapes. Collectors call them grey tapes. They are now nearly impossible to find. They publicly broadcast these tapes throughout neighbourhoods, utilising boomboxes and car stereos as well as stereos at house parties. Quote, None of them sound like too short, says Buzz. Some of these people didn't put out recordings, but they were known. Unquote. Throughout the 1980s, Bay Area hip-hop was an artistic movement struggling for a distinct identity. The first half of the decade was defined by street dance and aerosol art as much as rap and DJing. But as local youth began to absorb the sounds emanating from natural hotspots like New York, they created a distinctive style all their own, one that would make a global impact in the years to come. At Dell's house, Bars queues up an extraordinary live video clip of Mac Mill, Emperor E, and DJ Anthony Chaos Bryant performing at Festival at the Lake, a now defunct annual event held at Lake Merritt in 1988. Alex Nara Reese, who organised the showcase where Mac Mill performed, clarified in a follow up conversation that it didn't happen during Festival at the Lake. 
He also says the showcase was filmed in 1986 for a 1988 video compilation. Macmill and Emperor E go back and forth, trading sound effects and dense Oakland slang as Chaos cuts and scratches copies of Long Island Band original concepts, Deathless bass classic, Knowledge Me. Buzz praises Mac Mill's unusual Arabian style, which the latter deployed uh, nearly a decade later with the 1995 single Arabian Hump. Then, Buzz One calls Chris CJ Flash Jordan, an OG who worked with Timex Social Club, the Berkeley teen band whose 1986 electro-funk classic Rumours represented the first national breakthrough for Bay Area hip-hop culture. As Buzz broadcasts CJ Flash's voice from his phone through Dell's stereo equipment, CJ Flash spends the next hour or so describing a fledgling scene where poppers and boogaloo dancers, not rappers or DJs, were the prime attractions. These ensembles drew from a street dance tradition that dates back decades. Their kinetic performances ignited crowds at high schools, house parties and public spaces like Justin Herman Plaza and Union Square in San Francisco and UC Berkeley's Sprawl Plaza. Battles even took place on the street, with crews travelling to different neighbourhoods around the region to seek out rivals. Quote, You can meet with people on their turf and get down, and hopefully not get thumped in the process, says CJ Flash. Many Bay Area hip-hop pioneers got their start in dance crews, including Club Nouveau's Jay King, who pop-locked with the unknowns, DJ King Tech, who was known as Wizard and danced with Master City Breakers, and Flash himself, who performed with UFO. By contrast, rapping was a relatively new and underdeveloped skill, the lowest element on the hip-hop totem pole. Quote, Anybody could rap. Anybody could say a bunch of basic rhyme words with no style and flavour, says Bars, noting as an aside that most folks couldn't understand the lyrics anyway. How is the discussion about street dancers connected to an exploration of the Bay Area hip-hop sound? It's important to understand the conditions under which the genre emerged locally. As KQED's Eric Arnold explains in The Bay Area Was Hip Hop Before There Was Hip Hop, foundational elements such as spoken word, funk, and rhythm and blues existed locally well before New Jersey trio Sugar Hill Gang arrived with Rapper's Delight in the fall of 1979. At the same time, the Bay Area was not the Bronx, where breakbeat culture catalyzed and fermented. Bronx DJs, MCs, and B-boys like Cool Her, Grandmaster Flash, African Bambata, Grandmaster Cares, the Rocksteady Crew, and many others gained renown among mid-70s New York youth long before Rapper's Delight. By contrast, as CJ Flash explains, it took much of the 1980s for Bay Area youth to develop the cadences and rhythms we now associate with modern rap. Back then, enterprising musicians couldn't purchase studio software and distribute their own music on an internet platform like SoundCloud. Recording equipment was expensive. An unsigned artist needed the financial and business expertise to manufacture vinyl and cassettes with artwork, much less convince record stores like Leopold's Records in Berkeley to carry them. Recordable CDRs weren't widely used until the 1990s. This helps explain why so many rappers utilised turntables and Casio keyboards, and then recorded their songs using the microphone input on relatively cheap stereo equipment. Captured on recordable cassettes like Maxell and TDK, some of these quote-unquote grey tapes simply had stickers with handwritten titles. More often, they weren't labelled at all. In those days, Too Short was an outlier, a Fremont high school student who canvassed East Oakland spots like Arroyo Park, selling copies of Game Raps at a few dollars a pop. Since Short was originally from Los Angeles, he relied on rap partner Tony Freddie B. Adams to show him around the town. The duo made customised tapes for local drug dealers and players in the city's nightlife, 
now known as special request tapes, shouting out the customers' names in their raps. Short was a hustler, says CJ Flash. He had a style of tennis stories that was so outlandish and so funny that word got around. Short and Freddie B developed the trademark bitch catchphrase, and Short has often said that he and Freddie B intended to get famous together. Unfortunately, Freddie B was in prison when Short released his landmark Freaky Tales tape in 1987. Adams is now a minister at Mount Calvary Baptist Church in Fairfield. Others like Sir Quickdraw, Mac Mill, and Chief Naked Head, later known as Primo, he passed away in January of 2023, simply gave away their tapes or let friends copy or dub the originals. As Richmond rapper Magic Mike explained in a recent interview with Dregs One, dubs of his tracks circulated as widely as Germany. Quote, it was more or less trying to make a name for yourself. You had to make a tape, adds DJ Flash. Most importantly, Bay Area hip-hop in the 80s was a primordial soup of youngsters figuring out what the local sound would be. The answers wouldn't arrive until near the end of the decade. The Bay Area was behind, says CJ Flash, comparing it to more advanced regions like Los Angeles, South Florida and New York. We never thought about radio. Alex Noriquina hence remembers the first time he heard the Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight as a 14-year-old preparing to attend Oakland High School. Quote, When the song went off, everybody ran outside like, Did you hear that song? He laughs, calling it one of the best moments of his life. It was a pivotal moment, bro. We literally started rapping the song and trying to remember it. Nari called himself Sir Quickdraw, an alias inspired by Hanna-Barbera cartoon Quick Draw McGraw as well as the fact that, as a runner, I was hella fast. He took inspiration from Curtis Blow, the Harlem rapper who scored major hits like 1980's The Breaks, and Naru almost immediately began recording his voice on tape. His first original song was The Caveman Rap, which was inspired by Brooklyn rapper Jimmy Spice's 1980 single, Adventures of Super Rhyme. Naru can still recite those verses from memory. Now people come and take a trip in time with me, back to that sweet year, 1 million BC. I still got that old school flavour, man, he admits. Hip-hop was more fun for me back then. But rap in the Bay Area didn't take off right away. Quote, Most people would rap other people's songs. They'd just repeat what they heard on the radio, says Naru. Aspiring MCs honed their craft by congregating at Eastmont Mall, trying to impress the girls and getting our names on our derby jackets. And when Tom Tom Club's 1981 hit Genius of Love dropped, everybody rapped over that joint, man. Too many people. It's worth remembering that hip-hop was a phenomenon developed essentially by black and brown children. Rapping, pop-locking, spray-painting aerosol art on neighbourhood walls, even DJing. These were youthful forms of play and creative expression. Bars who grew up in North Oakland remembers popping and robotting at Pier 39 on Fisherman's Wharf in the late 70s as a child. Quote, you have people like Ben James from Live Incorporated doing pantomime and robotting, he says, noting one of the better-known dance crews. Dancers competed for attention and tips that they could spend on Snickers bars and arcade games. Another quote, Battle-wise, you had to have skill and talent to a certain calibre in order to truly be out on the wharf or on market and pal in front of the cable cars, he says. Local newspaper stories focused on the emergence of hip-hop as a youth obsession, Enterprising teachers incorporated it into the, their lesson plans. On high school campuses, fledging DJs like Joseph Thomas, G.I. Joe Sims at El Cerrito High School, and groups like the Devastating Four proliferated. 
at house parties, mobile DJ crews spun the latest electro, boogie funk and rap hits. Gathering at schools, churches and community centres typically reserved a few minutes before fledgling local rap and dance crews to perform. This was also the era of the Reagan administration's Just Say No campaign, and kids were often asked to help spread an anti-drug message through raps. Quote, Inspired by rapping groups such as Sugar Hill, Run DMC, Jekyll and Hyde and Mel, and The Furious Five, teenagers create their own raps, mostly for fun and to bring attention to themselves, read a June 29, 1985 story in the San Francisco Examiner. In the first half of the decade, street dance remained a focal point. Double Dutch jump rope competitions, sponsored by McDonald's, drew thousands to Lincoln Square Center in Oakland. The San Francisco Street Breakers held a fundraising event, Super Break Sunday, at San Francisco's Palace of Fine Arts in 1985. Ironically, street dance got played out after the success of Hollywood movies like Beat Street and Breaking, and rap music moved to the center of hip-hop culture. Quickening the process were concerts by black music stars like Fresh Festival, the first national hip-hop tour with headliners Run DMC at the Oakland Coliseum. Local radio tentatively began to experiment with rap, notably KMELFM, and its mixed DJs such as Michael Erickson and the late Cameron Paul. Quote, By 1985, there was this incredible scene in the South Bay, says Adisa the Bishop Bayan Joko, as a team DJ in San Bruno, who looked like Urkel, he remembers travelling far and wide to buy records, from Creative Music Emporium in San Francisco to Tease Wowsy in Oakland. Meanwhile, nightclubs like Mothers and Studio 47 bought a fusion of hip-hop, freestyle and techno. Quote, San Jose had underage hip-hop teenage clubs and no other city had those, he says. Banjoko later became a rapper, a journalist, and now promotes jiu-jitsu, meditation, and chess with his company, 64 Blocks. Back in Oakland, Nora continued making tapes. I come from a musical family. My cousin is the maestro, a.k.a. producer Keenan Foster, who has worked with Too Short, Drew Down, and Ascari X. Quote, and a lot of my family sings. I got a drum machine, a little Yamaha keyboard. I was playing my bass lines via double cassette decks. He collaborated with Taj Turntable T. Tilgman, uh, who was dope on the turntables. Turntable T eventually brought a Roland TR-808 drum machine, the instrument du jour for deaf BMCs. When that 808 came, that was it. Everyone loved that deck. Boom. Great tapes to circulate weren't the EP and album length releases we're familiar with today. Some tapes only had one song per side, or maybe just one song on one side, period. Eyes were judged not only by their ability to rap engagingly for several minutes, but also to chop up a familiar beat like Houdini's Friends, transforming it into something fresh and original, or even make rudimentary 808 beats. For example, Too Short drew attention for rapping the longest, as Bars explains, leading to songs that lasted 8 or 9 minutes. Quote, Those tapes were everywhere. Everyone was trying to see what was possible, says Ben Joko in 1987. He began making raps under the name MC Most Ill. His first song was Rhyme Junkie. Another quote. The truth was, some of it was really cool, but a lot of it actually also sucked because the art form was brand new. The quality control was not there, unquote. On August 18th, 1984, the San Francisco Examiner published an article called Rapping with Too Short, the first story on the 18-year-old prodigy. Pacific News Service journalist Anthony Adams called short songs preacher-like yarns over pre-recorded music 
and noted that one of them was about automaker John DeLorean, whose conviction for cocaine trafficking made national news. Short claimed he and his partner Freddie B sold over 2,000 tapes. The Chronicle Examiner also frequently interviewed Dominique Lady D. De Prima, a New York transplant and San Francisco State University student who rapped, sung, and organized events. De Prima possessed a rich family pedigree. Her father was the jazz writer Amiri Baraka, her mother the beat poet Diane De Prima. In late 1984, Cron TV recruited her to host Home Turf, a Saturday afternoon program that became appointment viewing for local teens. Everyone had a crush on Dominique, says Nairo, giggling. One of the under-acknowledged aspects of early hip-hop is the way elder black musicians shepherded young artists into the recording industry. The late Sylvia Robinson, who was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2022, initially emerged in the mid-50s as one half of Mickey and Sylvia, who scored a national hit with Love is Strange. As a 70s solo artist and producer, Robinson made Slinky, of the kit-like erotic disco capers such as Pillow Talk and Sweet Stuff. After discovering hip-hop when she heard DJ Lovebug Starsky at a party, Robinson formed Sugar Hill Records and turned three rapping teens she found in New Jersey into his first act, The Sugar Hill Gang. This process of soul veterans working with young people resulted in independent 12-inch singles that mirrored, if not yet accurately capturing, the nascent rap sound at a time when big companies virtually ignored it. With his Mercury Records contract, Curtis Blow was the only act with a major album deal. A handful of other pioneers like DJ Hollywood scored one-off 12-inch deals. A similar process played out in the Bay Area. The first Bay Area rap record is widely considered to be Phil, Motorcycle, Mike Lewis and the Rat Trap Band's Super Rat. In 1981, Boogie Funk's single, notoriously released by East Oakland heroin kingpin Milton Mickey Moe Moore's Ho-Disc Records. The name Ho-Disc was a cheeky reference to his one-time side business as a pimp. Moore has since reformed and is now a pastor in West Oakland. In fact, Mickey Moe boasts in his 1996 autobiography, The Man, The Life Story of a Drug Kingpin, quote, Ho-Disc Records became the first record company on the West Coast to release a rap record, unquote. The first daddy rap record, Disco Daddy and Captain Rap's The Gigolo Rap, was also released in 1981. Mickey Moe has another claim to rap lore. In 1980, he helped finance an Oakland Coliseum concert headlined by LA funk band War with the Sugar Hill Gang as a supporting act. Journalist Lee Hildebrand's pre-concert interview with the gang in Oakland Tribune was the first mention of rap music in the local press. A second funk rap novelty, Steve Walker's Tally Ho, also appeared in 1981. In 1983, San Francisco's Debo and Brian released the electro-funk EP This Is It, the momentum has started. Quote, I had made this vow that I would never ever do anything having to do with rap, laughs Claytoven Richardson. During his long career, the Berkeley-born, Oakland-raised Richardson worked with Aretha Franklin, Kenny G, Whitney Houston, Elton John, and Celine Dion. But in the early 80s, he was best known as a singer, producer, and arranger with hot dance floor jazz funk bands like Bill Summers and Summers Heat. His anti-rap stance reflected the music industry at large in the 1980s. Another quote, Nobody had the foresight to see they would morph and change and do the things that it's done, he says. Still, Richardson couldn't avoid the increasingly popular genre when he scored a production deal at Fantasy Records. The one-time Berkeley jazz label also known for innovative acts like Sylvester and Cybertron, as well as one-off singles generated by a, quote, throw it against the wall and see if it sticks philosophy. 
One of the records Richardson produced in that Anything Goes environment was Mighty Mouse's satirical complaint, I'm all rapped out. He wasn't the only one annoyed over rap, perhaps out of wishful thinking. In 1985, San Francisco Chronicle article referred to the fast-fading hip-hop scene. A vocalist named Lawrence Pittman didn't show up for the session, so Richardson performed the lyrics himself. However, Pittman showed up to rap on Mighty Mouth's second single, The Roaches, which parodied Houdini's electro hit, Freaks Come Out at Night. Other scattered local raps appeared between 1985 and 1986. Former Boogaloo dancer Jay King, just home from a stint in the Air Force and splitting time between Sacramento and Vallejo, formed a group called Frost and released Battle Beat. His friends Denzel Foster and Thomas McElroy produced it, as well as another electro-rap track, Sorcery's Woo Baby. Pittsburgh rapper James Red Beat Briggs issued Freak City, which was later remixed by NWA co-founder Arabian Prince. And there was Rodney Disco Alamo Brown from Richmond, whose 12-inch The Task Force is an early example of Bay Area rap chronicling street life. Most importantly, Two Short's rising buzz led to a deal with Deep East Oakland entrepreneur Dean Hodges' 75 Girls label. Released in 1985, the resulting Don't Stop Rapping was the first official album by a local rapper. While fans of a certain age still treasure protein electro-funk tracks like Girl, which E4E referenced on his 1998 hit, Oh, That's Your Life, the album couldn't compare to his raunchy and wickedly hilarious special request tapes. It was during this period that Nairo finally got his chance in the studio. Since 1984, UC Berkeley station Calix FM served as home to Music for the People, a Sunday morning community affairs and music show hosted by the late Charles Natty Prep Douglas, as well as DJs like Billy Jam Kiernan, who also broadcasts on San Francisco State University station KUSF FM, David Davy D. Cook and Funkster Ricky the Uhuru Maggot Vincent. When Nauru won a 1986 rap contest hosted by Billy Jam on KALX, he earned a deal with Baywave Records, a local imprint distributed by Hollywood-based Macola Records. Richardson was hired to produce the session. Quick Draw was a great rapper. He had a lot of great lyrics and ideas, said Richardson, on Rapaholic. Richardson and session engineer Michael Denton, who later worked with Spice One and E40, accompanied Quick Draw's dexterous and energetic raps with sharp angled percussive edits and sound effects reminiscent of the art of noise and mantronics. Respect to Clay Toven, says Naru, who not only continues to make music, but also owns a company, Hip Learning, that promotes childhood education with rap. He wasn't entirely satisfied with the rapaholic experience, quote, they made the record sound hella more polished. It was supposed to be a little more underground than that, unquote. However, he adds, Clay Toven taught us a lot in the studio about the mics they use and how to mix. It was a good experience. As the trajectory of Bay Area hip-hop waxed and waned, three catalyzing moments brought the scene into focus. The first was an R&B track. Timex Social Club's Rumours captured the pulse of Bay Area youth culture. From Marcus Thompson and Alex Hill's skittering electro-funk bass and drums to singer Michael Marshall's distinctly regional accent and coy recitation of schoolyard gossip. Did you hear the one about Michael? Some say he must be gay. Produced by Jay King and Denzel Foster and released on King's J Records in February 1986, it mushroomed into a top 10 Billboard pop hit and dominated radio all year. 
but by the summer, Timex Social Club was falling apart and trading accusations with King over money and credit. The group's only album, Vicious Rumours, by that point, it was just Michael Marshall. Featured drum programming from CJ Flash and a shout out to KALX's Nate Prep, who helped break rumours on his music and life show. Marshall retreated from the spotlight before re-emerging as the hookman on Looney's 1995 smash, I Got Five On It. After breaking with Timex Social Club, King formed a group called Jet Set and signed a deal with Warner Brothers Records. The group changed their name to Club Nouveau before debuting with the single Jealousy. A follow-up, the Bill Withers cover Lean On Me went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 while Club Nouveau's debut album Life, Love and Pain went platinum. King's growing stardom rippled across the bay and reached Felton Pilati, the Vallejo keyboardist, singer and producer best known as a driving force in the Bay Area funk stars Con Funk Shun. The two had already worked together on King's one-time rap group Frost. Pilati engineered that record. Pilati soon added one of King's projects Sacramento R&B slash rap group New Choice to a growing slate of projects he produced and engineered at his Felstar Studios. Felstar Studios was the culmination of work he had begun while not touring and rehearsing with Con Function. At his home studio on Sandpiper Drive in Vallejo, Pilati helped assemble records for fledgling local artists. I never thought of myself as just a studio, he says, where he simply records his clients. I have a little experience here. I've got several gold albums. Here, let me pass on some of this knowledge. When asked if he considered himself a mentor, he demurs, even though that's arguably what he was. When Pilati opened Felstar Studios on Sonoma Boulevard, his trusted associate was James Early, a young engineer whom he credits for adding a more contemporary sensibility to the studio's output. Among the locals who came to them were MVP, a family trio consisting of Earl Stevens, Danelle Stevens and Brant Jones, their 1988 12-inch The King's Men also included Tanina Stevens and Angela Presley, who called themselves Sugar and Spice. The members of MVP updated their stage names to E40, D-Shot and Be Legit and Tanina as Sugar T, and evolved into The Click, arguably becoming the most famous rap group to emerge from Vallejo. In 1986, Pilati and Early both had solo deals at Berkeley's Fantasy Records. It was there that Pilati met a former Oakland A's bat boy named Stanley Holy Ghost Boy Burrell, through Fantasy Records producer Fred L. Pittman. Quote, Fred would often hire me to do keyboard arrangements for him, says Pilati. When Pittman asked him to play keys for Holy Ghost Boy, Pilati responded, hey Fred, why don't you let me take the reins on this? As a classically trained jazz and classical musician, Pilati didn't think much of rap, even though Confunction not only included a rap verse on a 1982 single Ain't Nobody Baby, but also made Electric Lady, a 1985 hit produced by Larry Smith of Houdini fame that landed in the top five of Billboard's Black Singles chart. Quote, musically, I wasn't a fan, but as a producer, I said, I can do this, he says. Like everyone else, Confunction wanted to be relevant, and rap was all over the radio, unquote. The tracks Burrell brought to Pilati consisted of him rapping over sparse Yamaha RX-5 drum machine parts. Pilati responded by going into study mode. He listened to the rap stuff that was getting airplay like Ducky Fresh and the Get Fresh crew. As a result, the skittering percussion of Burrell's Let's Get Started is reminiscent of the Go-Go-inspired arrangements on Ducky Fresh's hits like The Show and all the way to heaven. Quote, My thing was to make it more music-driven than beat-driven, says Pilati. In many cases, he simply, quote, 
listened to what Burrell was talking about and wrote a straight R&B song underneath it, unquote. He also gives credit to Early, who helped refine the drum programming and brought, quote-unquote, that younger ear to the project. They incorporated stock horn stabs from a battery of Juno, Roland, and Yamaha drum machines. Meanwhile, Kent the Lone Mixer, Wilson, and Brian DJ Redeemed Marable added rhythmic scratches by cutting up Curtis Mayfield and Beastie Boys records. After the demos were finished, Fantasy Records dropped Pilate, Early, and Burrell from their deals. Quote, They weren't really sure how to market any of us, says Pilate. Then he chuckles. The next time I ran into the Holy Ghost boy, he had changed his name to MC Hammer. After forming Boston Records in Fremont with financial help from Oakland A's ballplayers like Mike Davis and Dwayne Murphy, Hammer turned the Pilate demos into three 12 inches. Ring them, the thrill is gone, and let's get it started. And the 1987 album, Feel My Power, quote, I was like, man, those were rough mixes. You were supposed to come back and let me fix that, Pilate loves. Today, it's worth revisiting Feel My Power and 1988's Let's Get It Started. Released after Hammer signed with Capitol Records, Let's Get It Started found Hammer and Pilate remixing those original demos while adding vital new tracks like Pump It Up. The results are bombastic and vibrant dance floor jams as ecstatic as anything by Kid and Play and Salt and Pepper. Hammer's subsequent leap into pop superstardom with 1990's Please Hammer Don't Hurt Em and the ubiquity of You Can't Touch This obscure just how great those early tracks are. MC Hammer's major label arrival in 1988 capped a year of Bay Area hip-hop on the cusp of national exposure. After two short issued Born to Mac in the fall of 1987 on his Dangerous Music label, Jive Records picked it up. Dangerous Music also issued Dangerous Crew, a compilation of vital Bay Area acts like Spice One, Rapping Forte, and the female duo Danger Zone. Digital Underground's playful and psychedelic underwater rhymes slash Your Life's a Cartoon led to a deal with Tommy Boy. Local talent waited in the wings, including rapper-producer Paris, ATC's Cisco Jam, Swaying King Tech, Flynamic 4CP, Dangerous Dame, The Power That's Packed, and MC Twist with the Death Squad, Just Rock. And the late Cameron Paul, known for his Beats and Pieces breakbeats, remixed Queen's trio Salt and Pepper's 1987 track Push It into Global Phenomenon. Incidentally, the first local group to score a major label deal wasn't Hammer, but Surf MCs, a Berkeley group that Profile Records promoted as a Beastie Boys-like rap rock tr- crossover. Their 1987 album Surf or Die proved a flop. Yet the third moment that catalyzed Bay Area hip-hop wasn't a single record like Timex Social Club's Rumours or an artist like Hammer and Short. It was the sound of walloping, all-enveloping bass. Made for surgically enhanced car and Jeep stereos, the bass colossus is as much a feature of hip-hop in the mid-80s as the pounding Roland TR-808 machine from Rick Rubin's production on LL Cool J's Rock the Bells and T. Rock's It's Yours to Rodney O and DJ Joe Cooley's Everlasting Bass and Dr. Dre's work on Easy es Boys in the Hood. It also mirrors the crack cocaine epidemic that began to blight and distort communities across the country. As street life turned treacherous, the spectre of the hustler and whether to become one, cast a growing shadow. Quote, Then the new style came, the bass got deeper. You gave up the mic and brought you a beeper. Do you want to rap or sell coke? Brothers like you ain't never broke. Too Short memorably rapped on his 1989 hit, Life Is... Too Short. Banjoko recalls how the presence of gangs transformed local shows. Quote, You would see a bunch of people dressed up together in the same gear, and you might assume they were a rap or dance crew. They were young drug lords, he says. 
you could get trampled, beat up or robbed by any of them. I remember 69 Ville being massively deep at the Fresh Fest and the Run DMC Raising Hell Tour. They were terrifying, straight up. You were going to tuck your chain, you were going to take your Kangol off, or they were going to take it. Unquote. Rap imagery became more honest and explicit. Some, like Richmond rapper Magic Mike, San Francisco's Hugh EMC, It's the Game, and Oakland's Hollywood, Gangster Rap, seemed to embrace the hustler ethos, while cautiously adding verses about the consequences of that lifestyle. Then there was Oakland rapper Morocco Mo, whose task criticised how law enforcement brutalised communities in the war on drugs. Quote, their intentions are good, but their actions are wrong. Every black neighbourhood was infested with crack, says Vallejo producer K. Ree Shahid. There was an influx of money coming into young black men, but there was also a lot of death occurring. The epidemic also marked his entry into the world of rap. As a descendant of the Bay Area's vaunted funk tradition, K. Ree spent the 70s and the early 80s playing bass guitar for bands like Grand Larceny, Body, Mind and Spirit, and Touch of Class, with keyboardist Rosie Gaines, who later joined Prince and the New Power Generation. His travels took him across the US, and even to Japan, where Touch of Class lived and performed for several months. Though his bands made demos, there are no official recordings to date. When asked about the first time he heard rap, K. Ree cites Jazoetry, ensembles like The Last Poets, not The Sugar Hill Gang. As a youth growing up on Lofas Place in Vallejo, he spent plenty of time following Confunction, hoping to apprentice with the biggest band in the city. K. Ree was in his mid-twenties when Rod Ice Andrews and Dan Lover D. Morrison, aka the Lover Twins, bought K. Ree a demo they had on a Casio keyboard, Hubberhead. The song title was slang for a crack addict, and the duo described the Hubberhead's descent into addiction with charismatic punch. They arranged music and rapped most of the lyrics, while K. Ree dropped a short verse and added guitar. K. Ree had already spent time at Pilates' home studio, honing his writing and production skills. Quote, I always enjoyed working with him, says Pilates. Now he brought Hubberhead to Pilates, and the two prepared for its release. Set up his own label, Big Bank Records. K. Ree distributed 200 copies of 12 inches to DJs and influencers. The record was super popular in the streets, says K. Ree. After Hubberhead, Kerry began working with Jay King, a fellow graduate of Vallejo High School. The opportunity to write and produce New Choices' 1987 single, Cold Stupid, and most of the quintet's 1988 debut, At Last, gave him important experience on a major project and financial stability. By fusing bass, funky R&B, and hip-hop breakbeats, New Choice reflected a parallel R&B movement that both influenced and was inspired by the hip-hop scene. Similar Bay Area acts included Oakland's Tony Tony Tony, who parlayed backing sessions for Sheila E. and Tremaine Hawkins into a major label deal. Flushed from his experience with New Choice, K. Ree was ready to start his own company. I'm listening to EPMD Strictly Business, he says, inspiring the name of his second label, Strictly Business Records. He knew that Mike the Mac Robinson, who also grew up on Lofas Place, was a rapper. Robinson hailed from a musical family, his uncle Steve Silver Scales, was a well-travelled Vallejo funk percussionist who played with Talking Heads, Tom Tom Club and the B-52s. Though it would be a delicious coincidence, Scales didn't perform on Genius of Love. 
Carey encouraged Robinson to take music more seriously. Meanwhile, Robinson's mother drew the memorable Strictly Business logo and opened briefcase ready for business. In 1988, Carey released a Max three-song EP, I'm Our Big Mac. Heard now, what immediately stands out is the unique tone of the bass. We use synthesizers that had dumb, fat bass lines, explains K. Ree, in reference to himself and Too Short, as well as future Bay Area colleagues like Anne Banks. By comparison, he says, other regional scenes relied on a natural bass guitar or samples from records. You feel it through your whole body. You can get it with a bass guitar depending on how you EQ the bass and what you run your guitar through, but you're never going to touch the subs and the depth of a mini Moog of the Oberheim Ovix or the Roland Juno 106. The EP's highlight is its B-side, The Game Is Thick, which centres on a sample of Prince's DMSR. In 1989, K re-remixed and re-released The Game Is Thick as a standalone 12-inch with a memorable cover photo. K looking super clean in a grey suit, clasping a briefcase with the Mac in a red and black bomber jacket. K calls the style Pimpin. We didn't mean Pimpin so much as getting prostitutes to work, he explains. It's an attitude and it's a musical style. The game is a metaphor for life in the black community. Street slang illustrated complex situations, whether it was dealing with the repercussions of a raging crack epidemic or simply navigating the tensions of everyday living. Meanwhile, the Max cool, silky, pimpish flow and Kerry's synthesized bass production proved a clear predecessor to the 90s mob music sound that took over Bay Area rap. Upon release, the game is thick, didn't make a major impact, and most copies went to local DJ pools. We promoted records out of the trunk, says Kerry. We went from Bobby G's Soul Disco in San Francisco to Rico Casanova's record pool, The Pros, in Oakland. Still, the Game is Thick remix received a mention in Davey D. Cook's April 7th, 1989 Beats and Breaks column for BAM magazine. Let me tell you, it's hype to the max, Davey D. wrote. With Kerry's encouragement, the Mac taught himself how to produce music with synth keyboards. He also introduced K. Reed to another Vallejo artist, Andre MacDre Hicks, who became Strictly Business's second act. By the time the Mac was shot and killed on July 23rd, 1991, in what K. Reed calls a case of mistaken identity, the two had recorded dozens of tracks and released a third and final 12-inch protesting police violence, 1990's Enough of Tiss Shit. One of the Mac's beats posthumously appeared on Mac Dre's 1993 track, The Mac and Mac Dre. Mike had a big, big loving heart, remembers K. Ree, sounding wistful. He emphasises how the Mac left behind a daughter, Mac Rayner Robinson, and a pregnant girlfriend who gave birth to his son, Mike. At one point, K. Ree plays a voicemail of the Mac, passionately singing a funky, swinging hook, as if to counteract the stereotype the rappers aren't musicians. He talks about how the Mac's way of playing simple, evocative keyboard notes for maximum effect Echoes in the work of his famed protege, Mac Dre. I miss him, he says. Bay Area rap broke wired at the end of the decade, leading to a 1989 story in the New York Times. Rap by the Bay, Oakland emerges as a force in pop. Not every local pioneer who laid the groundwork would enjoy the fruits of that success, but their stories are essential to understanding how local hip-hop came of age and everything that came after. And breathe. So that was 
Our Bay Area Hip Hop found its sound in the 1980s, written by Mossy Reeves for KQED. I have nothing else to say because the, 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 you have no idea how long this has taken to record, the amount of times I've stopped, started, stopped to get dinner, stopped again, stopped some more, started some more, had to replay some shit, had to get names right. It was a lot. This, is, <laughs> this has been the longest log read I've probably done. And uh, I have nothing else to say because that is a very, uh, with all that said, a very rich bit of hip hop um, history encapsulating, in fact, if you want to give it a word, um, chronicling, which is a better word. Um, So, yeah, absolutely outstanding story. Obviously, the, you know, you know, you know, E40, you know, Too Short, you know, MC Hammer, but the background of, of everything around it. And digital undergrounds and stuff like that is um, is very fascinating. So uh, respect to Mr. Reeves on that piece, and uh, respect to KQED for the whole um, their whole set. Um, they, this, the story is actually a part of um, uh, that's my word, uh, which is their year long exploration of Bay Area hip hop history, um, and uh, they have more uh, coming out throughout the year. So feel free to get sink your teeth into that. This is just one of many stories they have and will have coming throughout the year. And I think it's very worthy um, of chronicling. Um, I find I find the Bay Area as a as a as an area just so fascinating. Um, there's so much richness coming from there, and I feel like it's just so underdocumented compared to something like LA. Um, I feel like there's so much going on there in the Bay Area, Oakland, San Francisco. So and this is just one little piece, um, but an amazing piece nevertheless. So with that said, ladies and gentlemen, I shall leave it there. From the Fifth End Podcast Network, Ivor Chaitone, this has been most good. Intro music was Too Much by Vanilla. And the interlude music for uh, the show itself was uh, Nappy High's Charismatic and also the interlude uh, or music in general for the long read was sometimes seen by Tesk. Thanks to Mutual Music for being used too much and sometime soon. You can find all of these links in the full show notes. And with that said, I hope you all have a good week. I should always try and do the same and hope you're on better next week. <laughs> Until the next time, take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen.